It's wonderful to be in the house of the Lord this morning. I'm glad you're here. Let's read um, in the book of Acts. Let's read uh, chapter 16, verses 23, 25 down through 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were, pra- were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called the called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Father, let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. It was a September afternoon, 1982. It was the last period of the day, and I was in Ms. Charlene Glover's English class. Her classroom was right next door to the library at the high school. We were, it was a brand new school, and we were one of the first classes to get to go in to use the library. And Ms. Glover gave us a speech before we went in about how, how privileged we were to have this new library and how wonderful it was for us to get to go in and check out a book and to write a book report. She really sold it good. What she didn't tell everybody was it was the same books that were in the old school. It was just new shelves. But I remember going into the library that day and she told us for this first book report we could choose a book of any kind that we liked and we had to write a one-page book report on it. So I go to, I had moved all the books from the old library to the new library. I knew more about the Dewey Decimal System than anybody at the Library of Congress. So I went straight to the biographies, and I found a biography of Muhammad Ali that was about that thin, I think it was 40 pages. The font was about 30, and it was written on about a third grade reading level. And I grabbed that book, and I was headed on up to the, uh, the desk to get it stamped and, and to, uh, to go and sit and read my book in about five minutes and do my book report. And Miss Charlene Glover grabbed me by the elbow and squeezed my elbow and took me over and made me put the book back on the shelf. And she took me to the fiction section, and there was a book there that she pulled out. She looked, and there was a book there that she pulled off the shelf. It was by a man named um, Leon Uris, U-R-I-S, I think I pronounced that right, and the book was called QB7. And she handed me that book and she said, you're going to live up to your potential. And I said, okay. And so I took my book, 
mad and went and sat back down and thought it was unfair that everybody else got to read what they wanted to read and she shoved a book in my hand. But oh, how grateful I am to that woman for that day. Because I had lost my passion for reading. And she brought that passion back to me that day. And I took that book and I opened it and I began to read it. And I began to, I couldn't put it down. And in that book it took me all over the world and told the most riveting story. And I think I read it once and then read it again. And since that day I have been an avid reader. I love to read. Books are so important to me. Um, here in the front of my Bible is my summer reading list, the books that I plan on reading this summer. Um, and I have always thought that a book could change a person and, and teach a person, and I'm just passionate about reading. And I, I love books. But in thinking about that and knowing that about myself, I am so in love with this book. This is the most important thing that I do every single day. I love this book. And I love to read this book. I have, for the second time this year, I'm finishing the book of Genesis. I've read through it twice. And the history and reading about how God put everything into motion and His plan for salvation, even being seen there in those early pages in the book of Genesis. I love the theology of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse number 1, changed my existence as a Christian. When I read for the first time, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I read that over and over and over. Romans 8.18 and Romans 8.28 how wonderful those passages are and the theology that is there. And then there's Acts chapter 16 that I love in that same way. It's the action of Acts chapter 16. It's, it's seeing Paul and Silas as they go on this second great missionary journey and they are there for the establishment of new works. Paul and Silas leave from Jerusalem they go to check on the churches of Galatia. A young man named Timothy will meet them in Lystra. In chapter 16, we see the Macedonian call. Paul receives a vision from the Lord, and he sees a man standing on the, the coast in Macedonia begging him to come and to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see the conversion of Lydia, the first European convert. We see Paul and Silas thrown into, sea, into prison and then we see them singing at midnight and we see a Philippian jailer converted, not only he but his whole family. The flow of Luke's story of the apostles, the acts of the apostles, is so wonderful. But really I think it should be titled The Journey. It could be titled The Journey of the Apostles just as much as it is the Acts of the Apostles, because it is a journey of complete amazement. You see, we're on a lifelong journey with Jesus. If we're a follower of Jesus, if we have uh, repented of our sins and Jesus Christ is our Lord, then we are on a lifelong journey with Him. 
And it is the most amazing thing to be a part of. And there is, I am so amazed at how God has worked in my life and, and the places that God has allowed me to be and the fact that I'm able to stand here this morning and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. No one is more amazed at where I am than me. A, a friend of mine told me not long ago they were at a, a football game. And there were a couple that were sitting behind them at the football game. And it was some people who graduated from high school about the same time that I did. And they had immediately left Piedmont, had gone away to school, and they hadn't been back in a while. And so they were catching up and, and, and talking, and they were asking about where is so-and-so and where is so-and-so. And they asked the question, well, where is Michael Ingram? And my friend said to them, well, he's the pastor at the First Baptist Church. And they laughed. And they laughed in such a way as to say, no, really, where is he? And they said, no, he's the pastor at the First Baptist Church. And they were surprised by that. But nobody's more surprised by that than me. I think about the journey that God has put me on. I think about the very first time that I was asked to come and speak somewhere in a little country church in Ramburn, Alabama. And I rode to Ramburn, Alabama. I left Piedmont that morning at 6. My stomach tied up in so many knots I couldn't hardly breathe. My friend Raleigh Morgan rode with me. And Raleigh is just giddy about the fact that we're going to speak and the fact that we're going to get to eat this big country buffet that they're going to have spread. And he's just chattering about, all, about what Jesus is doing in his life. And I'm, I'm, wanting to, I'm, I'm so nervous I can't hardly breathe. And we get there and honest to goodness, I have never seen such a spread. These old country guys, and it was about this time of year, everybody's garden had come in. There was fresh tomato and fresh cantaloupe, and they knew the hog by name. It was so, and, and, and I look over there, and I'm so nervous I can't eat. But I get up, and I speak, and I realize at that moment, this is what God has called you to do. And when Raleigh and I got in the car, he's, he's on about, man, that was the best ham and best. And I'm like, Raleigh, be quiet. And I told him, I said, I said, I will never let the devil rob me of another meal as long as I live. And I'm proof positive of that this morning. But I think about that, and I think about this morning being here and being a pastor of the First Baptist Church of Piedmont and how God has blessed me. And you know what's different about me now than then? Absolutely nothing except I'm more dependent upon God every day than I was when I began. And it's made all the difference. And we look at these two men here, and one thing that I know about me is that God has been with me. Jesus has been with me in the brightest moments of my life as I stood here on this platform and I looked at that door and I watched the... <clears throat> and I watched Bree walk down that aisle toward me and as I walked in the waters of this baptistry on different Sunday mornings and baptized both of my sons, so excited to baptize Grayson that I hit his head off the bottom step. He's never been the same. God has been with me in those brightest moments and He's been with me in my darkest moments. But here's the thing. He has been my rock of my salvation every moment. He's been unchanging. He's been unwavering. He's been faithful. He's been just. He's been merciful. He's been gracious. And I can praise Him in any storm that I've ever been through. 
And I imagine the Apostle Paul in this chapter, he has so close a relationship with God that the Holy Spirit Himself speaks clearly to him about the direction that he should go. He warns him that he cannot go to Asia and he tells him which direction to go. Now you talk about having a GPS. Paul had one with the Holy Spirit. I pray that every day in our lives we grow in our relationship with God that the Holy Spirit directs everything that we do. Paul is so in tune with, with God and God does these great things. He sees the first converts in Europe. And now he's in a jail and been beaten. And we pick up this story. Why? Because he is going throughout the streets where he is and he's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and a woman who is filled with a spirit of divination, a sorcerer who can tell the future, becomes a follower of Jesus and immediately stops the sin that she's in and it costs a man great money. So this man stirs up a great commotion about Paul and Silas. He they are annoyed. And so Paul and Silas are beaten and they're thrown in the jail. And what do he and Silas choose to do? They choose to sing. They choose to pray and sing out loud. There's no whining. I was a youth minister for 13 years. We had one rule the whole time that I was in youth ministry when we went on trips. We had one rule. Callie can tell it to you. Callie Company is rolling through her head right now. No whining. That was the only rule we ever had. If you set yourself on fire, that wasn't against the rules, but you better not whine about it. Because whining is contagious. They could have sat there and whined about their situation. Can you imagine Silas looking at Paul and saying, Paul, I was there in Jerusalem living a good life, having a good time, and had a good ministry going on, and look what you've gotten me into, Paul. But Silas agrees with Paul and he begins to pray and he begins to sing. And it's a great illustration to each of us as to how we should live in every situation. We should live with expectation that God is going to take our circumstances and do something great with it. In every single thing that we go through. I remember as I wrote this first line here, uh, this first point, it says your condition is not your conclusion. I remember being gathered up at the end of a mission trip in Nassau, Bahamas. We had worked so very hard that week. And we were working on constructing a house for a group of people who lived in the most abject poverty that I have ever witnessed in my life. It was horrible to see the conditions that they were living in. It was amazing to me that their house had never burned down but as I got to looking at it, rot will, will not burn, so that was the only thing keeping it standing. And as the pastor of, these were Haitian refugees, and as the pastor gathered our group all around together to pray with us for the last time, he said, I want you to remember this for the rest of your life. Your condition is not your conclusion. God can take any circumstances and change it. And he pointed at the home where they were living in and the poverty that they were living in and he pointed at the new home that they were going to be able to move into and he said, there's living proof that your condition is not your conclusion. 
the hardest work I've ever done. I'll never forget there with a shovel on the ground mixing mortar. There was no mortar machine. You mixed it there on the concrete. And I can remember the whole time mixing it telling Evan Jones, Evan, get a degree. Be sure you get a degree. Don't do this the rest of your life. But it was so worthwhile to know that these people's condition was going to change. You have the picture there? This man here in the middle of that picture, his name was Freddie. And Freddie had cerebral palsy. And he was mentally challenged. And Freddie's life was in that wheelchair there. And he, he was in such poverty, there was no running water, there was no electricity uh, there in the home. And when you got close to Freddie, you didn't, you didn't get real close to him until you knew um, he just he smelled. And that was the condition that he lived in. It was horrible. But he was, every morning when we would get there, he had this giant smile on his face. And as we were getting the, uh, everything ready there, and we're getting that sand ready to mix for mortar, he gets someone to roll him over there to that pile of sand, and he, wheels, he slides out of his wheelchair, and he grabs a shovel, and he begins to shovel into the wheelbarrow because he wants his condition to change. That's appreciation. That is knowing that your condition is not your conclusion and that it can change. That was the most moving moment that I've ever experienced in youth ministry or on any mission trip that I've ever been in was watching him smile and get to be a part of changing his own condition. You see, he didn't let his condition override the fact that his life could get better. Paul would later write in Philippians 1.6, he says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I wonder as Paul was writing this to the church at Philippi, I wonder if he was thinking about the Philippian jailer and where he may be and the good work that was begun in him and where he may be sharing the gospel at that moment in time. Paul and Silas' condition couldn't be much worse these are notes that I found about what was happening to them. They were stripped, beaten, and placed in stocks in the inner cell. Stocks were made of two boards joined with iron clamps, leaving holes just big enough for the ankles. The prisoners' legs were placed across the lower board, and then the upper board was closed over them. Sometimes, for extra punishment, they would stretch you out so far that your wrists and ankles would meet together, and then they would clamp you in the stocks. Paul and Silas, who had committed no crime and who were peaceful men, were put in stocks designed for holding the most dangerous prisoners in absolute security. Despite this dismal situation, they praised God praying and singing as the other prisoners listened. Listen, sometimes today our problem is, is that our position often defeats us instead of developing us for further service. Sometimes we just quit too soon. Sometimes we just give up too soon. Don't give up. Allow God to work through the situation that you're in and allow Him to bring you to completion through it. Now wonder if at midnight, there as they begin to sing and they begin to pray, I wonder if Paul and Silas 
begin to reflect on why they were there in Macedonia and in Philippi. I wonder if they begin to think about why are we here? Why are we not out on the street preaching? Why are we not out leading more people to Jesus? Why are we here in these stocks and, and not able to leave? But the more that they thought about it, the more they thought about God's will and God's call on their life, and they didn't think about their circumstances anymore, they thought about the greatness of God. As we sang just a few moments ago, how great is our God? God's will and call was so much greater than the situation that they were in. Because they were surrendered to where God wanted them. They were completely surrendered to where God had wanted them to be. God's will and God's call. I am, I am at my best and I am at my happiest when I am completely surrendered to God's will and call for my life. When I am listening and hearing from God and I know that I am in the center of His will. Hadn't always been that way. There have been times when I've been disobedient as a younger Christian and was out, it wasn't where God wanted me to be for His will for my life. I hear so many people talk about God's will and God's call on their life. I hear so many young people today, young pastors, coming out of seminary. I've had classes with these people. I've got to meet them in places where we had conferences together. And I've watched them fold their arms and defiantly say, I will never go to a deacon-led committee-filled church. I'm going to go and plant churches. Okay. Have you prayed about that? Do you know that's God's will for your life? Because I used to be arrogant like that. I used to make statements like that. You, if you're, I would love for some of those people who make those statements to spend about six weeks with Adam Ragsdale who has planted a couple of church, churches and who knows the difficulty of it and knows that if it's not God's will for your life, you're going to starve and your family's going to be upset with you. And you'll be wishing that you were in a deacon-led, committee-filled church. Now let me say this about a deacon-led, committee-filled church. I'm a pastor of a church where the deacons and the, and the minister share responsibilities together. And guess what? I've baptized more people in that baptistry in the last three or four years than, in, than all but two other churches in Calhoun County. So you know what? If you're in God's will for your life, it doesn't matter where He puts you as long as you're in God's will for your life. So you, before you make brass statements, you better know that it's God's will for your life before you step out. Paul and Silas knew they were in God's will even though they were in a, a Philippian jail. Paul wrote these words later in Romans 8.28 and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Everything works together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. In real estate, they tell you that the most important thing, the three most important things in real estate is what? Location, location, location. In knowing God's will for your life, the three most important things are trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey. You better trust God and you better be obedient to Him no matter what your situation or circumstances. 
There are times when we really, even, even here, even these men didn't question, but in each of our lives there's been times when we probably question, is this really where I'm supposed to be? I have a young friend. He's 16 years old. He goes to First Baptist Church of Selma. I've been friends with his mom for my whole life. And he got to go on his first mission trip back early in June. He went to New Orleans with Mission Lab. She sent me about a dozen questions about Mission Lab and about New Orleans and about what he was going to be doing there. And I assured her he was going to be fine and it was a great place for him to be. And so I was surprised to hear that he was going on a mission trip to Honduras, right on the heels of that. Well, he gets to his mission post there in the Honduras, and guess what happens to him the very first day that he sets foot there? He's attacked by a dog. And he is, the back of his legs are eaten up, a broken arm, and he is taken to the hospital, and they begin to give him rabies shots. And tell him that he can't leave the country for 14 days. Now, do you think that on his first international mission trip, he was sitting there thinking, what in the world have I gotten myself into? Why am I here? Any normal 16-year-old probably would. But his mom told me he is so distressed because he's not able to work and do what he went there to do. Later on, they got him approved to be able to leave the country and come back home and his mom sent me a picture of him from the airport, arm in a sling, and the biggest smile on his face that you could ever see. Knowing that even though his circumstances were horrible at the time, he was in God's will for his life and, was, and, and didn't question it and can't wait to get on a plane and go back on an international mission trip. Trust and obey God's will for your life. Your condition is not your conclusion. And then we see as we go on and we look at this situation here, we see your condition is in God's hands. These men were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. As they begin to pray and sing, their minds must begin to think, God has us here for a particular reason. And doesn't it always seem in our lives that there always seems to be suffering before glory. Amid their suffering, Paul and Silas experienced the strong presence of the Holy Spirit. So strong that it filled their hearts with joy and praise. Have you ever been in that deep, dark situation where it looked hopeless and all of a sudden your heart becomes filled with a peace that you can't understand? A peace that is just so wonderful and joyful. That's what these men were experiencing here. Simon Peter would write later in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. He would say, He would say these words, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter says, don't be surprised when a trial comes your way. 
Let it work itself out and give God glory all through it. This joy, they have a joy for the honor of suffering, and it's common all through the book of Acts. They have a joy that comes from within. They're singing praises to God. How are they singing praises to God locked down in stocks after they've been beaten? Because Galatians 5, and 23 says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. They were filled with these things from the Holy Spirit and it came out in the midst of this trial and tribulation. It came out as praise. In Philippians 4, 5, Paul would write about the gentleness and graciousness that the church at Philippi had shown him about their meekness. And he knew that yielding to Christ's control produced songs of joy. Now listen, they didn't get there in their situation and in their circumstances. It didn't take them getting locked down with, with stocks for them to all of a sudden say, hey, we need to get right with God. They were right with God and in right standing with the Holy Spirit when they went into the jail. And because of that, they were able to lift up their voices in praise and to stir something amazing. They had a joy within them, and then they had a joy without. The prisoners were listening to them. You're looking at me this morning saying, well, what does this have to do with me? Two men 2,000 years ago in a jail cell surrounded by prisoners. I don't know any prisoners. I'm not surrounded by any prisoners. Oh, yes, you do, and oh, yes, you are. You are surrounded daily by people who are in prison to their desires or the lust of the flesh. You are surrounded every day by people who are in prison to addictions and who are in prison to the sins of this world. And they are looking and wanting to break those bonds. And Paul and Silas here are singing praises and they're hearing them. What are those people around us hearing from us? They're not hearing the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're hearing the gospel according to us. And how we live, and how we talk, and how we go about our lives every day. We are the gospel that they see. So, your condition is in God's hands. And your condition is known by others. What happens here? An earthquake comes. Now, in a couple of Sundays, I will be in Chinandega, Nicaragua. And when we get to the mission house, this is one of the first things they say to us. Earthquakes. They talk to us about earthquakes and what to do in case of earthquakes. Now, if you have a child going, don't worry about it. They're safe. They're with me. I've got it. Now, I'm a very sound sleeper, a very good sleeper. I sleep hard. And when I'm away from home, sometimes I take something to help me sleep. So what I tell my bunkmates is this. If we have an earthquake, your first responsibility is to grab me by the ankles and slide me outside. I won't ever know it. You just get me outside and make sure I'm safe. Now, they prayed and they sang 
And they lifted up the name of Jesus until the foundations were shaken, the doors were opened, and the chains were loosed. When's the last time you prayed that way? When's the last time you prayed in such a way that God delivered you from something that had you bound and had you wrapped up and you prayed in such a way that the chains were loosened from you? I'm reading in Genesis uh, just a couple of days ago and I'm reading uh, about God's covenant with Abraham and God put Abraham into a deep sleep and Abraham, it says this about him, he was still Abram at this point, the, the great character of the Old Testament, the central piece of the, of the book of Genesis, you know what it says about him? When God put him in that deep sleep, he was fearful and afraid. He trembled at God's presence. God is so great and he is so in control of every situation that, we, that when we sometimes are in his presence, it's fearful at how great he is. I know in my own experience, but the evening that I came to the, to the Lord, it was like an earthquake came into the room where I was, and it, it shook me to the foundation to where I was fearful. I was fearful of the next breath that I would take. That's how much I wanted to be with Jesus. That's how much I wanted to experience the forgiveness of Christ that when He came into my presence, it shook me to my foundation. I wonder, I wrote this question down, as these doors fling open and as these chains fly off, did God open the doors for Paul and Silas to get out or for the guard to get in? Did God open the doors for Paul and Silas to leave or for the guard to get in? Obviously not for Paul and Silas to get out because what does the guard do? He calls for a torch, he lights a torch, and he goes looking because he knows that if everyone is not there and everyone is not accounted for, then tomorrow morning he'll be in stocks after he's been beaten. So he's scared. And he runs in to check and see and guess who's there? Paul and Silas, because Paul and Silas know that God didn't perform this miracle there for them not to stick around and see how it played out. Did God remove the stone on Easter morning to let Jesus out or let us in? This guard here, he, he does this. He, he First of all, he, he goes to an investigation. He lights a torch. He runs in. He wants to see who's there. And he asks this question. He says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I've heard you singing. I've heard you praising. I've heard you praying. What do I have to do to have what you have? You've been here in an earthquake. The foundations have shaken. And you're still sitting here singing and praying and praising your God. Let me know how I can have what you have. If someone needed to know how to be saved, would they know to ask you? You see, this jailer knew from the life that Paul and Silas had lived in front of them, him for just a brief time. He knew that to be saved, 
He could ask them and they could tell Him. He has a deep longing in His heart to be right with God. Now I wonder, what was His attitude before then? He's got, he, he's, he's shaking. He's come down here. He's begging them, what must I do to be saved? But I wonder, when they first started singing and they first started praying, what was His attitude before the earthquake came? As they began to sing, He's probably somewhere cursing them. I wish they would shut that up. I'm going to go down here and shut them up. I'm sick of hearing them pray. I'm sick of hearing them sing. I'm sick of all this. I want to, go to, I want to be able to sleep peacefully and they won't let me. That's, as I, I expressed in my Sunday school class this morning as I was teaching, that's how I used to feel about being at church on Sunday morning. I didn't want to be anywhere where people were praying or praising God or singing and lifting up Jesus. I was mired so deep in sin and living so far away from God that the last place I wanted to be was somewhere where it was going to be thrust upon me that I was living that way and I was going to have to watch people live and enjoy being a Christian. Because I didn't want to bend my will. I wanted to live the way I wanted to live and I didn't care about that. And it used to, my mother would, mother, I'm sorry, my mother would guilt me into going on Easter and Mother's Day, and I would sit there with my teeth clenched, mad about having to be there, and then I'd go home and she'd fix lunch and she'd tell me, I sure do appreciate you going to church with me, and I'd feel bad. You know, she has that hold over me like that. Are you fixing lunch today? I came to church. But I didn't want to be in those places because it revealed to me the darkness of my soul and how far away I was from Jesus. This jailer, all of a sudden, who was angry probably before at this singing and praising, all of a sudden he wanted to be a part of that singing and praising. When I became a Christian, I wanted to go to church I wanted to be in church seven days a week. I would get the newspaper and I would find a revival. I told them in Sunday school class this morning, there was always a revival somewhere around here and I would go, I would stand at work and I couldn't wait to get off work. Whereas I used to couldn't wait to get off work and get a six pack, I couldn't wait to get off work and go and pick up a hymnal and sing praises to God among God's people. I lost nearly every single friend I had when I became a Christian. I was alone, and it was, I thought, I thought well, this, this can't be how it's going to be. And then God began to get, bring these people in my life. Chris Posey came back into my life. And Scott Maddox came into my life and began to disciple me and began to, to, to lead me. Randy and Bobby Joe, there was, not a, there was not a week went by that we didn't go to a revival somewhere. Randy knew where every homecoming in Calhoun County was. We'd show up and go to homecoming, and then we'd go eat with them. They thought we were just some kids who may have went to Bible school there one time or something. But I just wanted to be with God's people. That's how this jailer was all of a sudden. I want to tell you something. If you know Christ as your Savior, and if you have had this experience, you want to be in church. You want to be with God's people. 
You want to be around these things. You want to be in fellowship with God's people. You wake up on Sunday morning with an anticipation to get there. I prayed with an expectation this morning to see God move in someone's life. When I used to wake up on Sunday mornings, I would roll out of bed about lunch, and I would hit the creek, and that was it. I didn't want to know about what happened at church. I didn't want to hear Mother talk about church. I didn't want to know any of that. I would purposely stay out as late as I could so that when I came home, I didn't have to hear about what went on at church. But now, I love church. And I love the church because it's God's people. You're the church. Not this physical building. I love these stained glass windows and I love every... But I love you. I want to be with you. It wouldn't matter if we were meeting here or if we were meeting out in the field somewhere. I want to be with God's people. And all of a sudden, this Philippian jailer couldn't wait to be with God's people. And look what happens to him. Paul and Silas give an invitation. They say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved, you and your household. That's a bold statement of faith. Paul and Silas haven't met their household yet. Haven't met his household yet, but they say, you come to Christ. Dad, you come to Christ, and everybody else is going to follow you. Dad, listen to me this morning. How you live affects how your children live. And how your, the direction you go affects how your children go. What was he to, to believe? First of all, he had to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. The sinless Son of God. And then he had to believe in what he did on the cross. He had to believe that it was not an execution, but it was a substitution. Jesus was there in his place. And then Paul and Silas give an explanation. In verse number 32, they say this, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Do you know how to share your faith? Do you know how to tell someone else how to be a Christian? If you come here tonight at 5.30, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to preach a sermon called Vegetarians and Soul Winners. That sounds crazy. But you be here and I'll tell you. Then there was a demonstration. In verses 33 and 34, he completely changes. He changes so much that his brutal nature changes. He didn't want to give them stripes anymore. He was washing their stripes and healing their stripes. John 13, 35 says this, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Then we see his confession. In the last part of verse number 33, he was baptized. He publicly declared, I am a follower of Jesus. We see his compassion, the humility and hospitality as he brings these two men back into his home, prepares a meal and sets them down and then we see the celebration there in that last verse in 34. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is going to amaze you. But I went from being someone who didn't want to hear people sing about God, but when I first became a Christian, I used to help lead singing in the church that my mom and dad were in. That's amazing, Dennis. Most of the people in the choir were old and they couldn't hear me, so that's how it went well. Here's what I want you to think about as we close. I want you to think about this right here. 
We don't know any more about this jailer. We don't know any more about his family. But here's what I want you to think about. When he went back to the jail after this experience, what did the prisoners see? What did the prisoners notice? They noticed a change. They noticed a change in his desires. They noticed a change in his attitude. They noticed a change in the way he treated people. They noticed a change in how he lived and how he talked. To be completely honest with you, I can't, I can't say it for 100% fact, but I bet you they fired him as a jailer because he was probably too gentle. But he changed. Is there a definite change in your life? Is there a definite change in who you are because you say you're a Christian? Not just because you were born in a nation that claims to be a Christian nation, or not just because you were born in a home that says they are a Christian family, not just because you have attended Sunday school or, or worship service, not just because you went to every VBS in town, but because you repented of your sins and you gave your life completely to Jesus, has there been that change? Think about your life and where you are. Think about your desires and your passions. Are they different from what they used to be? Have you experienced this change. And can you say that you can praise God in the dark of night? When things are at their darkest, when things are at their hardest, when you are at your wits end with life, can you praise Him in that storm? As Micah comes, I would ask you to pray with me this morning. And sincerely consider that question. Father, as we come to You this morning, dear God, will You reveal through Your Holy Spirit our standing with Jesus. Father, if these words have touched a heart through, through the Holy Spirit, dear God, I pray that right now He's pointing those souls to Jesus. If there are those this morning who once had a passion and a desire and a hunger for the things of God and they've drifted away from that and it's bothering them so much in their heart right now, dear God, I pray that You would speak to them and allow them to break that chain. Maybe there's someone here who is struggling with baptism, church membership, whatever it is, dear God, I pray. I pray, dear God, that you would have complete freedom and speak to their hearts. As we come to this time of worship, reflection, and time of knowing where we stand, would everyone be able to leave here today saying, I know Jesus and I'm changed because of it. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? I'm here this morning. If you want to know Christ as your Savior, I'm here I'd love nothing better than to take God's Word and show you how.
Whatever you need to pray for, whatever you need to do, use this time for the glory of God.